You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, so we're going to start by um, talk, talk, setting up a series of um, a series of um, Gemaras which talk about the category Shah Patrak. We'll start, uh, I'm going to switch us back all the way to page one, I'm sorry. Um, sorry if this is dizzying for the moment. Um, here we go. Okay, so the um, Gemara in Sukkah, this is one of the cases that we're going to be staying with. Gemara in Sukkah says, Gemara in Sukkah says the following. Um, there are four, there, there are four minima sukkahs, you all know about that. Um, and you can't add to them or subtract them, that's not our issue. If you don't find an estrog, this is our issue, you can't bring something from another species. You can't, right, uh, you can't bring a pomegranate instead of an estrog, as you, uh, that, right? If they're withered, kimushin, then they're kosher. But if they're dried out, here's our real case. If they're, if they're dried out, then they're puzzled, right? You're not yotzei the mitzvah of the four minim if you take a dried out something. Rabbi Huda says, apiavation. Rabbi Huda says that even the, um, even the, um, even dried out ones are kosher. And now Rabbi Huda adds something. He says, maseb krachin or karchom, different girsot, people of a particular city, they used to bequeath their lulavs to their grandchildren. Okay, lulav bequeathed to your grandchild is likely to be very, very dry. Amrlo, uh, so the rabbi said to him, what kind of proof is that? You can't ping proofs from situations of pressure. So we don't know what the pressure the Bnei Krafin were under, but the most likely pressure they're under is that it was impossible to get fresh lulavim. Maybe it was impossible even to get one fresh lulav for the whole city. Um, so, they had, so they had no other realistic capacity. It could be that it was possible only at enormous expense. We don't know. But there was some circumstance which made it extremely difficult to get a non-dried-out lulav, even a non-exceedingly dried-out lulav. And Rabita says, look, they used to do this. And the rabbis don't say, or the people who ever respond to Rabita don't say, no, they didn't used to do this. They say, you're right, they used to do that. But that's a shas hatchak. And you can't prove what the halacha is in a non-shat chak circumstance from a shat chak circumstance. Okay, but that's going to be a little problematic because it says that they're pasul. So either it's a kosher lulav or it's a pasul lulav. Why should a shat chak change the nature of lulav from kosher to pasul? Okay, that's our underlying question. Um, and we have to figure out what does Rabbi Huda think? Right? Does Rabbi Huda have a principal position? No, a shat chak is a proof. Otherwise, that's why he cited it. Or does he have a disagreement about the specific circumstance? Does he think, no, that wasn't actually a shat atchak? Okay, right, those are underlying questions. I brought you two other cases. One is about, um, one is about um, roofing a sukkah with, uh, with boards um, that, um, that, ha- that are, that are four, uh, four tzvachim wide. And there again, right, there's a rabbinic decree against doing that because it feels too much like a roof. And here again, Rabbi says, look, uh, right, once upon a time when it was dangerous, they did that. Why it was dangerous to make a sukkah in a particular way is not clear. And they said to him, no, it was dangerous, that's no proof. Okay, everybody points, everybody says, obviously it can't be a pikuach nefesh situation, per se, because then, obviously, you do anything you do to save, right, to save your life. It must be a circumstance either where it wasn't really that dangerous, it was just a little bit dangerous, or that it was dangerous to build a sukkah, but the question was, is this a sukkah or not? Right, Rabita says, look, they did that. And the response to it might have been, okay, but it wasn't the sukkah. They just did something as, um, right, 
Okay, right, we'll, we'll go back to that. There's a third case. Rabida says the same thing about bringing things through various uh, places that would be Asur de Rabbanon. The issue about both these cases is that both these cases are obviously rabbinic, whereas the invalidity of a, of a, of a dried out lulav on the surface may at least be, and, and probably is, a biblical issue. Um, I, brought, I brought the other two cases, even though they're less dramatic, to show you that this is just a pattern. It might be a position of Rabbi Yehuda, that he, Rabbi Yehuda always thinks that Shasatchat is a proof, and the rabbis don't. But there are other cases, I could bring you other cases from Tosefta, where Rabbi Yehuda does this as well, but we'll see. It's not only Rabbi Yehuda, so it's not clear that it's a particular ideological position. Okay, I can show you that, for example, that, that it uh, spreads into the anonymous section of the Rishalmi. Um, here's a case where, um, where uh, really fascinating case, it's own right, where Rabbi Zira says, Rabbi Hanel, you're not right, you're never allowed to uh, read um, scripture orally. And then they quote a story where Rabbi Meir wrote a Megillah by heart, and the response is, Okay, right, so the Yerushalmi seems to state this as, a, as, as an accepted principle that you can't drive halacha from Shasatchak. On the other end, you know, that's the answer, but the questioner assumed otherwise. So this dialogue between Rabbi and the sages plays over. And then we get to the text that is really going to primarily um, occupy, uh, occupy us. Here's the text. Okay, so Tanya, we learned in a, uh, we learned, we learned in a that Amar um, Lechachamim. So we have background you have to know about this is there's debate between Rebbeliezer and the Chachamim about um, pre women who are presumptively premenopausal, who missed three consecutive um, expected periods, and then the question is if they then later bleed, um, right? At what point do you have to presume that they started becoming bleeding, started bleeding for the purpose of tahorot? Um, but Rebbeliezer says you assume that they were tahorot until the moment that they start bleeding. And the Chachamim say you have to go back 24 hours. So Rabbi Ezra says to the Chachamim, Maaseh b'ri ba'achat, there's a story about a particular young woman, Behetlo, that's a place, Shehevsika shalosh onot, right, she missed three periods, Uva maaseh lifnei Chachamim v'yamru dayashata. And the, the story came to Chachamim, and they said, we presume that she was Torah until this moment, against the standard... The position that is articulated by the Chachamim in opposition to Rebbeliezer, which is that you have to go back 24 hours. Amrulo, so they, um, right, so they said, they said to Rebbeliezer, ain't shasat raya. Okay, same dollars, Rebbeliezer, you can't bring proof from, um, from a shasat chak. But here the Gemara does something useful for us. The Gemara says, my shasat chak. What is, what's the definition of a pressure time? So the Gemara gives two answers, um, which do not at all seem to be the same thing. The first answer is, there was a famine. And so, right, and if we declared the food that this young woman worked with to be Tamei, then there is a certain number of people who will not be able to eat it. If it was Truma, then, right, then it becomes um, right, inedible to everybody. Right? So there were, there's, a, there's a time of scarcity, and this Psaac was affected by the um, right, by the necessity to preserve um, right to preserve the food. but some people say no, it's not about this. It's not about the time of scarcity. It's just about the amount of stuff. Right, taris afish lavida the It's not because it was a time of scarcity. It's just that she was um, in whatever way we would call her. Right, she was a super spreader. That um, right. That that in some way she affected the tara of a great deal of material. 
and because she affected the Torah of a great deal of material, therefore, um, right, therefore they felt compelled to respond. Okay, so now we have a boundary of what's called a shat hatchak. For the purposes of whether halacha changes, a shat hatchak means either there's a generalized famine, or it means that there's something about this specific circumstance that motivates us to think that the ordinary halacha should not apply. And the Chachalim Zerbeliezer, just because we said that she was Tehorah in that case, doesn't mean that you can think, you can say that this is the general halacha. Then the Gemara goes on. The Gemara says, Tan we have another Brayta. Ma'aseh aviasar Rebbe Kerebeliezer. So now we're several generations later. Rebbe Yudah Nafsi is confronted with a case, uh, with a case, and he rules like Rebeliezer against the Chachamim. That the woman is Torah up until the last, presumed, Torah up until the last moment. But after he remembers, we don't know what he remembers, Amar, He says, oh, Rebeliezer is sufficient to rely on in, a, um, in, in an extreme circumstance. Okay. So the Gemara says, What is it that he's remembering? Uh, if you're going to say it's after he remembers, oh, I thought the halacha was like Rebbe but really it's not. Really the, the, really the halacha follows the Rabbanan. So if the halacha, the Gemara says, if the halacha is really not like Rebbe so what does Shas change anything? So this seems to challenge the whole presumption. The halacha, either, the halacha is or isn't, and a Shas can't change the halacha. Ella, rather going because of the fascinating notion, that we're talking about a case where the halacha is in flux. It's in a, I call it, it's in a, it's in a liminal or a quantum state where it hasn't actually been decided. Because remember, we're mechanical decisors, right? So we don't have any, we don't have any of our own opinions at this stage about the meaning of the text, right? So we're dealing with the case. What we know is that there are multiple authoritative opinions. And there has never been an authoritative decision about it. Um, right? So, so what does he remember? After he remembered that Abeliezer was a minority position, so he said, ah, so what did he say? Ah, what? So it sounds like what he said is, ah, I shouldn't have paskin that way. But then he says, but it's okay that I paskin that way because it's a shasat chak. So there's a really ambiguity, right? Because if it's really a shasat chak, maybe right, he should have paskin that way. So it could be, and the way most people read it is that it's not really a regret. It's that, what's, that Rebbe made this psak thinking, thinking it was an ordinary psak. And then he said, oh my goodness, I was wrong. And then he said, no, I wasn't wrong because in a shasat chak, that's really how you should paskin. Okay, so now we have, um, right, so now we have two different circumstances. One circumstance is Herbeliezer uh, bringing a proof that the Chachamim of an earlier time behaved, or of his earlier of his of his of his memory behaved in accordance with his position, and they, and they say to him, "You're making an inappropriate generalization." Uh, we agree that in a uh, right, we agree that in a Shas Hatchak, um, that's the halacha, but uh, but that doesn't tell us the halacha in ordinary circumstance. Then we have one stage later where after this, this argument between Reliezer and the Chachim has already taken place, and now we know that the, everyone agrees about a Shas Chak, but they, dis, they dispute in the ordinary circumstance. Rebbe has a circumstance where he thinks it's ordinary, 
And then he says, uh, and then in the end, when he realizes that um, he was wrong about it being ordinary, um, but he's also wrong about it, uh, or at least he thought it was an ordinary talk, and he realizes, no, it wasn't, it, you know, I was ruling like a minority position. He says, minority positions are fine in a shatatcha. So the issue we're going to have to address immediately is, are the boundaries here, right, in the first case? In the first case, what we're saying is there's universal agreement that in a shatatchak you should behave one way, but, um, but there's a, a question whether you can extend that. And here, we're not talking about universal agreement. Here, what we're saying is there's an argument, but you're allowed to rely on the minority position in a shatatchak. So are the rules the same? Right? Is it really what, we're, is really what we're saying is, one way to read it is, that Rebbe Liezer's position is, right, the minority position here, at least, is um, that you, right, that diff, is, the, is agreed by everybody to be the position Bishasat But That doesn't seem to be the, the real nature of the story. The nature of the story seems to be that there's an argument, and there's a difference between saying there's universal position and saying that, right here, it sounds like Rebbe thinks that the Chachamim would argue even in a Shasat but he thinks he's allowed to reject the Chachamim in a Shasat Chak. So really, there are two kinds of cases. One case where everybody agrees what the Halacha is in a Shasat Chak, that's the first half. And a second case where there's a dispute even in a Shasat shas Chak, but because of the Shasat Chak, you can rely on a minority position. So this ambiguity is uh, a machloket between Rashi and Tosfot. Here's how Tosfot expresses it. Right? Tosfot says, Lismok alav de Shasat Chak, that's the second case. So Pirish Bekuntrus, Dishnas Batsaras Habav, Ike Hefser Taros. So the, um, this is a Tosus in Erevin, but it's talking about um, a quotation of our Gemara. So it says, Rashi says that the circumstances under which you can rely on a minority position are the same as the circumstances in the first case where basically everybody agrees. So it sounds like Rashi is saying that really relying on a minority position is really something like a claim that there really is no argument about that case. Everyone would think you, sh- you should rely on a minority position in that case. But that's, you know, that really should depend on how, ext- how extreme the argument is. Tosos rejects this. Uh, Tosos says, B'yesh shalom arkane, you can't say that. Because in circumstances like the first half, the rabbis agree. Um, because that's the meaning of the phrase, you can't bring proof from that. We agree it happened. We agree with Zalacha in that circumstance. We just think that's no regular proof. Um, okay, and the Gemara there says, right, that Shnasat defines the Shnasat Chak as a Batsorit, or as too many things to uh, too many things to do. Okay, so Tosfos says we have to really set up two different categories of Shnasat Chak. There's the kind of Shnasat Chak where everybody agrees what the Halacha is. The only, the only the only discussions we have about whether this is that kind of Shnasat Chak. And then there's a kind of shasatrak where no, right? There's an argument what the halacha is, but you, as a second level decisor, are allowed to rely on a minority position. And Tosus says that is a lower standard, right? Um, right? There's, there's a standard of shasatrak where everyone agrees, right? That has to be a very high standard of shasatrak, and that standard is defined as famine or extremely expensive circumstances. But um, then there are other circumstances where, you know what? No. People still argue, but in those lesser circumstances, you can rely on minority opinions. And Tosis tells you what those lesser circumstances are with a very close reading of the Gemara. Right? He says, well, when it, what's the Shasat Chak? So he comes up with a clever idea. The Shasat Chak that Rebbe is thinking about when Rebbe says, Gedaihu Rebbe Liezer, Lismoch, Shasat Chak, Achar, Nishin, Iskar, is a Shasat Chak 
created by his earlier psach. Now, Joseph says there are two examples of what that Shasatchak is. One possibility is, um, this is his last line, Shasatchak Shashoel Halakhlo, Beatarach Gedoler Dofacharav. It just means Rebbe Paskin, the person left, and now Rebbe would have to track after that person. Abraham Lincoln's story, right? Tracing the person down, right? Many, mile, many miles away. So Rebbe says, look, do I need to go ride, a, you know, ride my horse for six hours to track down this person and tell him I made the wrong sock? No. It's a shasat hak for me. And because the shasat hak for me, all right, therefore I can leave the psak as it stands. That's a much lower standard than a famine. The second possibility Gemara says, which is, um, which is more relevant, is, you know what it is talking about where Rebbe Paskin this, and before he paskined it, the woman or whoever came in contact with her had not, in fact, made much food tummy. But because of his tzak, now lots of things have become tummy. So the, right, the shasat chak is the, is the effect caused by his, right, is the effect caused by his taros. And whether the issue is, it's also, you know, the economic loss or whether the issue is the embarrassment caused by correcting a psak that has had such circumstances um, is not clear. So, right, probably the second. So, Rebbe has a, um, so Rebbe says that the, right, really, that the standard in which you can rely on a shitat yachid post facto is if it causes difficulty for the posik. That doesn't tell us very much, though, about what the standard for a posik is relying on a shitat yachid in advance. Right? So, we might really say there are three kinds of shasat chak. There's the kind of shasat chak where really everybody should agree. Uh, right? And that's not relying on minority opinion. That's just saying this is the halakha and the shasat Then there's a the shasat chak where you can rely on a minority case. That really has two kinds of cases. One is where you already made the decision and now the question is you have to correct it. That Tosfos gives us standards for. And then there's a situation which might matter most to us, which is where um, I have a circumstance that's not quite the same thing as a famine. It's not this huge economic loss, but it's not an ordinary circumstance. Am I allowed to rely on minority opinions there or not? Okay, how does this play out? Um, so moving to um, moving to moving to page uh, to page two, the, um, this, the the Rama quotes a list of rules about uh, about Shasat Chak. Uh, sorry for that. I think the Rama, Rama, um, so here are, here are the Rama's rules. Uh, the Rama says if we're talking about Harat Iser Veheter, which is our case, right? We're dealing with uh, with with the ritual law, not with um, adversarial law in court. Hudvar Iser Deraisa, we're talking about Deraisa, so Ramah says there are rules. Right? Ordinarily, if you have no opinion of your own about the meaning of the text, and there is no authoritative decision, so if it's a Deraisa, then you, you, follow, you follow the strict opinion, and if it's the, uh, the Deraisa, then you follow, then you follow the, um, the lenient opinion. Okay, I keep doing that, I'm sorry. I don't think the chat is working, so I'll stop and take questions soon. Here's what Tosfos says: "V'dafka in betacholkin heim shavin." Right? This, this, all these rules apply only if the argument is between people of equal authority. Aval ein somchan al divrei katan neged divrei gadol imenu bechachmav minyan afilu bishasat chak. Tosfos says, you, even in a shasat chak, you can't rely on a minor figure. Um, a, uh, as opposed to a as opposed to a major figure, let's say means um, you know, wisdom and number of students. Although it could also mean age, but it's wisdom and wisdom and 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 uh, and public influence, uh, public halachic influence. So you can't rely on a minor figure against a greater figure. Afilu bishas atchak, ela im kain hayag gam kain hefsid meruba. 
right? So Tosis, so the, the Ramos seems to rule, as we'll see, sort of like Rashi, that the standards of Shasat Chak are the same. And then he says, right, he says, even, um, right, he says, in this Shasat Chak, you can only rely on a Katan negative Regadoli menu if there are two circuits, right? It has to be a Shasat Chak, which also involves great loss. Right? You can't rely on an individual against the, against the Rabim unless you meet these rules, which are sorry, which are Shasatchak and Hesed Merubah. So it sounds like our standard for relying on minority opinions according to the Ramah, uh, which is the same as Rashi, is right, and he seems to apply this even not just post facto, but even in circumstances going forward. You can only rely either on minority opinions or on the opinions of lesser, of less influential figures if you, he, you meet this standard called Hesed Merubah, and Hesed Merubah is greater than Shah Satchak. Okay. Um, he puts in an you know, additional rule that will be important to us later, that all this applies only if the greater, the greater party or the, or the multiple have heard the minority opinion, but if they're not aware of the minority opinion, the rules don't apply. That's not my issue. Okay. The Bach then comes along, and the Bach says, right, the Bach says there are really three kinds of, um, of Shasatchak. There's an irregular Shasatchak, there's some kind of pressure on you, but the loss is minor. Right, and this is, right, so this is, you know, on an ordinary weekday for an ordinary person, because Shabbat can sometimes be called um, Shasatchak, as we'll see, right? Because even wealthy people, we'll see in a moment, can be considered poor if they won't have any food for Shabbos. But we're on a regular weekday and somebody comes with a kashas shayla, which is going to cause them to throw out something which isn't terribly important. I don't know, you know, a, a, a container of cottage cheese, whatever it may be. So that's what we call a regular shasat chak. Okay, then he says, Shani, shasat chak shiyesh bahefsid mashmo. Right, there's a shasat chak where there's an objectively great loss. And then he says, applies a field ashir. It's not a relative category. They're just telling you to look and say, wow, that would be a terrible waste. Okay, so if uh, you know a rich person comes to you, right, and you know, and their entire, right, the question involves their entire meat supply uh, for the next two weeks, and you look at it, and you say, okay, you know what, for this rich person, the meat supply for two weeks is not a big deal financially, but it's a lot of stuff. Right, you can set up what your boundary is that you know that where you can say that even for a rich person, this is not trivial. For the world, it's not trivial. Um, Okay, then he has this right a, a third category. It says, um, There's a shasid chak that has an objectively small loss. But we consider it as if it's a great loss. Um, that means a circumstance like this. Um, right, so a poor person during the week, so he's because the person is poor. So any loss is, is, any loss is important. Right, right? There's also a shasat chak for a rich person who doesn't have an alternative for Shabbos. Right? That's considered as if it's a hefsid merubah for a rich person during the week. Um, okay, and he thinks that's what, and he thinks that the that this is what we call um, the equivalent for rich per, for the rich person's food just before Shabbos is like everybody's food during a famine. Right? That's the hefsid merubah So there's a Subjective standard of great hefsid merubah. Um, 
Okay, and then he says there's also um, in terms of a person's objective um, objective circumstance. But now he adds something new. He says He says, right, all this is about the rules for relying on minority opinions as opposed to relying on less influential figures uh, or less great figures. He says, but we're talking about relying on minor figures against greater figures. That, he says, really um, against the Ramah, you can't rely on that ever. Right? He says, you're never allowed to rely uh, because of Shasat Chak circumstances on lesser figures against greater figures. Certainly, if you're dealing not with objective Hesed Meruba, but only with, um, only with um, subjective Hesed Meruba, and he tells you explicitly, this is against Harav Bagal Shulchan Aruch. This is against Ramah, who thinks that the rules for the Din Katol Katan Kineged Gedol Shavel Adin Yachid Kineged Rabim, right, which is the same as uh, the Ramah thinks the rules for relying on less influential opinions is the same as relying on minority opinions. The less that he thinks that's wrong, Ella can depreciate. Rather, the truth is as uh, as I have said. Okay. So let's stop for a moment. I'm going to summarize, and then we'll take uh, then we'll take questions. Really, there are three potential kinds of ways in which halacha can change b'shasat chak. There could be a circumstance where the argument is there's universal agreement that this is the halacha. Once we agree that it's a shasat chak, everybody agrees this is the halacha. Then there's a second situation, which is we say it's a shasat chak, and therefore I can rely on minority opinions against majority opinions. Everyone agrees that in a situation of Hefseid Mirubah, you're allowed to rely on minority opinions as opposed to majority opinions. And the third question is, can I rely not on minority against majority, but on minor as opposed to major? There, the Ramah says that in Hefseid Mirubah, you're allowed to rely on, right, it's following Rashi, that in Hefseid Mirubah, you're allowed to, probably, you're allowed to, um, actually, let's, let's leave Rashi out of it. Relying on the, the, the Ramah says, you're, in Hefseid Merubah, you're allowed to rely on uh, minor opinions, not just on minority opinions. And the Bach says, no, you can't rely, um, you, you can never rely in a Shasat Chak on minor opinions. The only time, right, all a Shasat Chak can change is either reliance on minority opinions or a claim that here's a circumstance where there's no argument at all, because everyone agrees this is the Halacha Bishasat uh, Chak. Okay, so I'm going to stop for a moment. And uh, this would be a good time to ask questions if anyone, uh, if anyone has any. Okay, I guess I'm going to assume that was uh, pellucid, so I'll go back to sharing. Yeah, and uh, yes, sure. Okay, so in a in a situation in which it's time of abundance, certain questionable food items are going to be ruled as not kosher. Right. But in a but in a situation in which food is not abundant, mm-hmm. what we're saying here is that you can be more lenient, not not go totally against halacha, but be more lenient or, or rely on more lenient opinions to make sure that everybody has enough. Is that right? Yeah, but it depends, like I said, it depends on, you know, leading opinions 
So we sort of dispute whether those leading opinions are minority opinions and how severe the and how severe the issue is. If it's a really severe issue, then it's not relying on leading opinions. Everyone thinks in those leading opinions it should be fine. And if it's a severe, if it's a less severe situation, so then the Ramo would say you can rely on uh, you can rely on minority or minor opinions if they're lenient, and the Ba'ath would say no, only minority opinions. You can't take positions that are that are that are stated by minor figures, even if lots of minor figures hold them. All right, that's the criteria we're setting out. Okay. Wait, I have a question. Can you hear sure. me? Yes, Jerry. I may have missed this. I was not in the beginning, but. Is there never a shasatachak that's so severe that we don't even need a minority opinion? Well, what I say is, is right that I, I, what I argued is that uh, there are positions where it's not that you don't need a minority opinion. It's everybody there is no minority opinion because everybody agrees what the halacha is. Right. right? Okay. So, right. so in that case, what happens? In that case, you can follow. Right. It's, everyone agrees. Right. So there's no dispute. No, I'm sorry. So, so we know what the halacha is no, under normal circumstances, right. but this is a very severe shasat hak. Can we ever violate that consensus opinion? Well, so the answer is we can't violate the consensus opinion, but we can argue that the consensus opinion would be that the halacha should be different in this kind of shasat hak. Okay. Right, that's the first case of Rebbe and Rebbe Yezer, where, right, of the Chacham and Rebbe Yezer. Rebbe Yezer says, look, there's this case where the Right, where the Chachamim accepted my opinion and, and didn't make her Tamei ta- retroactively, and the Chachamim say, No, we did that because we agree that you're right in that kind of circumstance. But that doesn't prove anything about the ordinary circumstance. But we still need somebody who has that opinion. We can't, no, we can't we don't, never... we don't. It's just a coincidence that Rabbi Ezra thinks that position is ordinary in oh, ordinary okay. circumstances, right? It might be that, that Rabbi Ezra didn't say that. We would still think that. Okay. 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 So let's go, let's go back to... Um... Wait, I have a question. Yes, Adina. Um, so is there, like, all, so but for all of these cases that, like, the Gemara mentions and that were, like, in the Ramah and the Bach, it was, mm-hmm. what, is it talking about, like, also disagreement in, like, whether the present circumstances are shot up the Chuck, or is, like, everyone agrees, and then the question is what to do? For our circumstances, we're assuming that Everyone agrees as to the, not only that, that it is a shasat chak, but as to how severe a shasat chak is. Right? Obviously, you can complicate this and make it a, you know, an iterative situation. What happens if I think it's the kind of shasat chak where everybody should agree, and you think it's the kind of shasat chak, right? What happens if I think it's, that it's a minority opinion, and you think it's not just a minority opinion, the minority is a trivial figure? <clears throat> right? right? That, those are obviously second stage arguments. I'm in my thought experiment here. Everyone agrees about everything. Uh, right, all the circumstances, and I'm reaching consensus halacha about how to react in this circumstance. And, and the consensus, we, yeah. we also have like rules for a shahat on the that, like what's considered a communal shahat that would be like the drought year or the individuals, like if it's Shabbos or whatever. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And the, right, at least so far, people have assumed that the shahat called Hefseid Meruba can exist either communally or individually, and we haven't, right, and we haven't set up the, you know, a, a claim that, no, there's a difference between a communal shasat chak and an individual, and that can accomplish things that an individual shasat chak, no matter how severe, can't reach. Right? You, could, you could imagine such a position, but we haven't seen such a position yet. Okay. Other questions? All right, I'm going to go back to sharing. Um, okay. So, um, so moving on, here is the, um, 
right? So I'm going to give you. Um, so now we're going to talk about um, how how rat, right. We've talked about how how halacha can change in terms of authority. Now I want to talk about how radically halacha can change, uh, right? How how much difference could there be between what the consensus holds in an ordinary circumstance and what the consensus holds in a shasat So the tour sets out a machloket as follows. The tour says we're, we're dealing with lulav again. All the, each of the four species that are invalid because some kind of flaw in one of the four species. If we're in a shasatchak, which is defined as, we can't find one that is kosher. So all the things that the Mishnah says are pasul, if it's because of a mum, some flaw in the lula of the Esra of Gadas or the Rava, if you can't get a kosher one, guess what? You can make a bracha on one that's otherwise puzzle. The Haravid Katav, but the Ravid wrote, Shalom Yavarechalehem, that you can't make a bracha on them. Ravid says, no, How could you possibly make a bracha on it? It's puzzle. Ravid just says, But it's a good idea to, it's a good idea to have, you know, to do something that's a ritual memory. But it doesn't have, right? You can't say that something that's pasul becomes kasher just because the Shasatchach. But, but the Rush, the tourist father, said, no, I think you make a bracha on it. Okay, and then we'll see that the, the Rambam seems, seems to create new distinctions. The Rambam says that a dried-out lulav is kasher b'shasachach, but not a dried-out estrog or hadas. So, right, so he seems to split the difference somehow to create a, create a new kind of rule. Um, but the, the tourist says, Lo nira, but I don't understand. The maishno zemizeh. Right, the the um, tourist says it seems to me this is an abstract question. Um, right, if right, do the do the mumim that invalidate the four minim, do those r- rules apply bishasat chak or not? If you think they apply bishasat chak, then they're all puzzle, and if you think that they don't apply bishasat chak, they're all kasher. Okay, we have to figure out what. Right, so we have three positions. We have the rabbi who says general rule: if it's pasul, then you can never make a bracha on it. It's only just going to be some kind of recollection. If you you have the um, the rush who says no, you can even make a brach on it, and you have the Rambam who says it depends. Okay, so let's see how the Beis Yosef sets out this machlok. Uh, so the Beis Yosef starts off by quoting the Mishnah, then he quotes uh, then he quotes the Rush um, who says Mikan Mashma right as the Torah said, and he quotes the Ravid, and the right said so the Ravid originally agreed with him, but now we get to the language of the Ravid. Right, this is the rush quoting the Ravid. He says, "V'shuv chazarbo ve'amar." In the end, the Ravid stopped agreeing with me, and he said, "The bein b'shaset chak ve'vein shelo b'shaset chak ain yotzin be'avesh klal." You can never fulfill your obligation with a dried out lulav. I'm going to make this a little bigger. The chol hecha de katani pasul. Whenever it says pasul, mashma afilu b'diavad. That means even if it's after the fact, and he, the Ravid here equates b'diavad and b'shaset chak. He says, "Look." If we would tell you, right, if, if in a circumstance where you, know, you, you accidentally took a dried out lulav, we would tell you, you got to do it again. It's not, you weren't yotze even b'diavad. Then afilu So how can we say it's different just because there are pressure circumstances? Because the Rebbe says, how could this be? That in a pressure circumstance, you fulfill the obligation, you can even make a bracha on it. Right, we tell you, go ahead and make a bracha on it. And then we're going to tell you the moment the right, you know, uh, wake up in the morning and we say, oh, there's no estrogen available. You bring me, you bring me your dry, or no lulavim available. You bring me your dried out lulav. And I say, yes, 
make a bracha, fulfill the mitzvah. Ten minutes later, it turns out that a shipment of Esrogim just come in, and I say, you got to do it again. How can that be? And how can, right, how can the same etrog be puzzle or kosher? And the rabbi says, it makes sense to me. Usvarahu, right, it makes sense to me. Kiyayavish, kemesu, a drive at little of his legs. If it's dead, so how could you possibly make um, a bracha on it? Rather, what he says is, Elish no klinodo biadam bishaset chak. But he says, it's a good idea to take it in your hands in a shaset chak. Because in circumstances where you can't fulfill the mitzvah properly, it's a good idea to do something as a memorial so that you'll remember there's such a mitzvah. And he thinks that's what the Chacham is saying when they say means. They don't mean we agree that's the halacha. Rather, okay, so the Ravid rereads that, um, that Mishnah. I read it to you in a, in a biased way. It's not that when people say to you, Ein shaset chak raya, to the rabbi, it doesn't mean that there's a consensus position that that's the shaset chak. That is halach and the shaset chak. They just mean that sometimes you can't fulfill the mitzvah. And when you can't fulfill the mitzvah, you have to create substitutes which are not the mitzvah. Okay. Right, that's the, right, that is the, um, right, that's the position of the rabbi, to which the rush responds. He says, "V'lashon in shasat chak raya, and no moral perish." But he thinks this is a um, this is a uh, a forced reading that the the rabbi's reading is not compelling. Because he thinks, look, Rabbi Yehuda brought this proof, and what's Rabbi Yehuda's proof? He thinks that Rabbi Yehuda's proof must be that the bekrachim used to make brachot on it. in shasat chak raya, and right, he thinks the proper reading is that they went all the way. Because if they didn't make brachot, Rabbi Yudah has no proof. Rabbi Yudah says, look, this must be the halacha. If they didn't make brachot, what kind of proof is that? They would say to him, right? So the rabbit must be wrong. So now the, um, the rush comes up against the rabbit's argument. He says, hang on a sec. But how can you tell me that something is puzzle on one hand and kasher on the other? And now we get to the really radical thing is, you might tell me all the other things, all the other cases where this happens is are rabbinic rules. But here, the psul of Ulav Yavesh, according to most figures, at least on the first day, is a biblical thing. Right? So here's what the Rosh says. Um, All these invalid rules about the four minim, even though they have the, the rules of Halakha Deoraisa, they, the, the, they have the formal standing of Halakha Deoraisa, there are lots of cases where the Halakha Deoraisa is subject to rabbinic discretion. Scripture gave it over to the rabbis to determine what the standards are for the right to law. And so what the rabbis decided is, if it's not a shasatchak, then you're not yotze at all. Because they want the Jews to take the mitzvot seriously. So the rush, right, so to speak, bites the bullet. And the um, and the rush says that um, it's right. The rabbis have absolute discretion, and it's perfectly plausible to say that the consensus halacha is that under ordinary circumstances this is completely invalid, and yet in a shasat chak this is um, right. This is a complete. This is completely valid. Okay, and that's how you see the right that the. That the um, that the Mordechai writes this, he says, even though we, we rule that all, all the four minim are Yaveshim, 
where we make a bracha on Alulav and Adasi Veshe, Mishum Dilo Efter, right? So the Mordechai says, that's what we do in Ashkenaz. All right, and the Rav says the same thing is true about a, a withered esrog, an esrog that is, um, that is missing something. Okay, but in the bottom, the, um, the Beis Yosef then says, well, there's got to be a boundary here. He says, Benir it seems to me that we should make a, a, you know, a, fine, a, a fine distinction here, a close reading. Uh, the Rabbeinu, that he wrote, Kol machmas mum. The Torah wrote that it's only the things that are, the four minim that are pasul because there's some kind of flaw in the object. Lafuke me'osam shepsulim mipnei she'enan minam. Right? As opposed to those which are pasul because it's not really an esrog, it's not really a lulav. You can't say that in a shasat chak, the chachamim said, okay, stop, don't take a palm tree, take an oak tree. That's just ridiculous. Now, those are Disney, but he says, Kadas Shota, right? There's a plant called Hadas Shota uh, or Vitsifsifa that are very close to Hadasim, but not quite Hadasim. Those you can't take ever, even if Shasat Chak, Right? So what he says is there's a fine line when you do things for a Shasat Chak only as a memorial. Um, right? So, or even when you do things because you're fulfilling the halacha, if I tell you, if the Chachamim would say, okay, you took an estrog last year, but this year there are no estrogim, so take a pomegranate, there's no way that when it comes, there comes back to being a trogim available, we're ever going to let people, stop people from using pomegranates. And you can't use pomegranates. So therefore, the Chachamim said that, uh, that there has to be boundaries to the Chachamim's rule. You can suspend details but you can't, you can't change the species. That's an underlying uh, principle. Although he recognizes, right, that there were people, um, right, he tells you that, it was, that you'll, see, you'll see in, uh, in Reish Membet, you'll see that there are, um, that there, are there were people who, uh, right, here we are, there were people who, um, who allowed taking a, uh, a something that wasn't Hadas, but looked like a Hadas, and they made brachos on it because they couldn't even get dried out Hadasim in their section of Europe. But the, the Beis Yosef rejects this. And then he says, it seems to him that the right conclusion is, all these, uh, all these um, species that are invalid, if it's a Shas the Tuli Natalinan, you're supposed to take them, but you're not supposed to make a bracha over them. Okay, so let's put all this together now. Here's what the Beis Yosef, um, I think, is saying. He says there's a fundamental dispute between the Rush and the Ravid. Um, the Ravid thinks that anything which is utterly invalid can't be valid in Shasat Chak. There's a bright line. If it's utterly invalid in one circumstance, it can, it's not valid in any other circumstance. The Rush says no. Not only rabbinic laws, but even biblical laws to some extent, are given over to rabbinic discretion, and the rabbis are entitled to say that um, something is utterly invalid in one circumstance and perfectly valid in another circumstance. But the Beis Yosef then qualifies the rush, and I think he has a good reading in there, and he says, there's got to be some boundary to that. Um, And the boundary, he frames it as a pragmatic boundary that at some point, Saying the halacha is this way in Shasat Chak is non-credible, and nobody will believe that that's not really the halacha all the time. So you can't make that kind of change. 
And I would have framed it a little differently. I think that's probably, you know, in a sense what he means, which is there's got to be some fundamental integrity to the halakha. And so you can't, you can't say, right, you know, as Lincoln, you know, again, Lincoln, if I call a, a tail a leg, is it, right, it's not a leg. So I can't call a pomegranate natural. Right, so that, right, so there's some kind of boundary to the discretion. And, but the boundary is not obviously, right, the boundary is something between a change in, in an accidental attribute or a change in an essential attribute um, as to what rabbinic discretion extends to. Then the base, right, the base Yosef himself says that he thinks that the right solution is to compromise between the, um, is to compromise between the rush and the, uh, between the rush, the rush and the rivet and to say, you know what, we can say that it's possibly a mitzvah. So we'll, right, we'll encourage you to do it, but we can't say you make a bracha on it, right? That's, that, that the base Yosef thinks, now he frames this as a mechanical issue, I guess, that he can't decide between the rush and the rivet, so he ends up with a suffix. So suffix, brachot lakel, so you don't make the bracha, but in terms of the mitzvah d'oraisa, you do do it, but I think he's actually can be framed as, you know, reaching a very reasonable position that you can only say in a shasatchak, this might be the halacha. You can never say in a shasatchak, this is the halacha, if it's pasul in all other um, circumstances. There's another position, which I'm not sure we'll, probably won't have time to get to, so I'll tell, say it outside, which is to say you can make a bracha, but don't think you can make a bracha because it means that we're actually certain that you're yotze. It's just that brachos are certainly a function of rabbinic discretion. So since brachos are certainly a function of rabbinic discretion, then we allow you to make the bracha, but don't think that means this is necessarily really the halacha. Uh, okay, I'll just show you the same argument playing out here about a Megillah, right? What happens if you don't have a full Megillah? You only have uh, you know, separated scrolls of Megillah, so we call it Chumash, right? When Megillah is written in multiple scrolls. Um, so he says, the Ratur says, right? If the Megillah is not kosher, some people say, read it out of a, read it out of a, a Megillah that's written in multiple scrolls. Just like that we say, Yosef And the Shulchan Aruch, right? The Beis Yosef consistently paskins, you can read it, but you can't make the bracha. Um, the Megan Avram says, but some people, right, because why? Because some people say they're Yosef B'Shasetchak. So that's relying on a minority opinion in a Shasetchak. But he says, I'm not willing to rely on a minority opinion to the point of making a bracha. You know, now maybe that depends on how severe the Shasetchak is, we saw it. But then the Megan Avram says, but only if it's a, if even the Chumashim are done, the Galil, right, they're done as a roll-upable scroll. But you can't use a codex, right? Chumash Shalanu, right? But a, a codex, right? That yotze, right? That you certainly couldn't, um, that you certainly could never, right? A book, you know, a bound book as opposed to a scrolling book, that you could certainly never use, let alone, he doesn't deal with the issue of printing versus non printing. Okay, and then the Mishnah Burris says, quotes all that, but then he says, So, and the Primagadim says, no, you know what? With a bracha, you could, right, even without a bracha, you might as well do anything because as long as you don't make the bracha, you could even bring a pomegranate. Right. Okay, yes, good time to stop for questions. Uh, anyone, uh, anyone have questions? Okay, so let's, let's summarize where we are, uh, where we are, where we are again. Um, so we've now, what we've now said is that in addition to disputes about which sorts of positions you can rely on, there are disputes about the extent to which you can rely on them. So maybe the minority versus majority opinions are only questions about 
Bidyevid uh, versus Lechatchila, where the minority position says this is true Lechatchila. Um, but things that uh, everybody agrees are ordinarily Pasul. So there's a dispute about whether you can ever change the standards of Halakha absolutely um, and say because of these circumstances, everything has, right, everything has, to, everything has to change. The Rush says that within boundaries, as long as you can still say it's the same kind of object, within boundaries, you can change it absolutely and say it's, it was possible yesterday, it's kosher today because the Shasat Chak. The Ravid says you can't do that, right? That's ridiculous. And the Mechaber says you can do it halfway. You can do it, but you can't make a, but you can't make a bracha. Um, people argue about the, people argue about the, um, about the bracha. Now you can see all these things playing out. Um, uh, nowadays, in right, there are two kinds of contexts. Uh, one kind of context is the um, is the zoom the zoom question, and you can see all these sorts of issues playing out. So, in terms of let's say whether you can be Yosei the Megillah, so there is a minority. What I think what everybody concedes is a minority position that you can be Yosei the Megillah. Uh, you can be Yosei the Megillah by some kind of electronic means. So some people said let's right. This circumstance is severe enough that we can rely on a minority position, um, and because we can rely because we rely on the minority position, we can even make brachot. And some people said you can rely on minority position, but not so far as to make as to make brachot. Um, some people said that this is not really a minority position because the minor, they were dealing they had a they had a misunderstanding of the technology, so even they would agree that this is not a minority position. And therefore, the issue is not whether we can rely on a minority position. The issue is whether we can say that halacha is different now. And yesterday, you couldn't be Yotze a Megillah on Zoom, but now you can be because there's no other way of being Yotze. Right? And then people argue, is Megillah the kind of circumstance that generates that kind of change? And you might say, well, you know, probably what the Mechaber would have said in such circumstances is that even if you agree that this is the kind of, that this is the kind of circumstance which justifies extreme measures, you could only justify it to the extent of allowing people to do right to read the Megillah. You couldn't justify it to the extent of allowing brachot. Right, that's right. That's a framework for thinking about lots of these issues. Right, um, right. And I think it's important to understand the difference between right. Really, there are three kinds of circumstances. There are circumstances where people or arguments. Some people say what we're dealing with is a minority versus a majority position. Right, and that create right that everybody agrees that if we define this as then you're entitled to rely on a minority position. Some people say, but no, this isn't even a minority position because they wouldn't have held that in our circumstances. Or otherwise, way of framing it, they would say is, you're allowed to rely on a minority position only if you think the minority and the majority are equally plausible. But I don't think the minority is plausible here, so this is not a minority versus majority position. Uh, when it comes to other issues, right, let's say like forming a virtual minion. So forming a virtual minion, right, everyone agrees that there's no minority position that way, certainly not in the minority position of people of equal stature. So there the issue becomes, can you rely on, uh, on extreme figures who are not highly influential? Or can you just say the circumstances are so radically different now that we have to change the halakha? And maybe davening in particular is the worst circumstance for doing that because maybe the Mechaber says that the one thing you can't do in those kind of, cir- those kind of circumstances is make brachot. All right, so that's a, whole, that's a way of framing the conversations about the use of Zoom. I'll talk about that 
in uh, much more detail in the um, the Thursday night um, shear. The other circumstance that I think we have to address is uh, definitions of mikvah. All right, so you've probably read that there are people who have um, who have tried to argue for um, a return to bathtub uh, to bathtub mikvahot because of the extraordinary circumstances. So you have to first of all debate whether the circumstances are that are that severe, um, right? That you know that ordinary mikvahot are in fact um, enough of a risk not to not um, not right that you really have to think about other kinds of mikvah. Uh, I would say that right now we need to have a very careful balance. On the one hand, all the medical opinions that are published you know, state that you can um, you can uh, create mikvot in ways that don't create an appreciable risk, at least for people who aren't um, who aren't high risk themselves. Um, on the other hand, I think, and there's a letter from Rafi Astroff of uh, Gush Etzion that I think is a very important in this regard. He says, but that doesn't mean that women aren't entitled to say that I don't trust the perform the I don't trust the hygiene of my particular mikvah, and I'm scared, and therefore the normal rules about obligation to go to mikvah uh, are not right or should not apply should not apply in these circumstances, and that's very important because of women who are in circumstances where they might be under spousal pressure, um, issues like that that you shouldn't tell people they have an obligation to go because a reasonable person might look at their local mikvah and say I know that it's possible to keep a mikvah safe, but I don't believe this mikvah is safe. Um, then the question about, uh, you know, about bathtub mikvot. So uh, I think that, first of all, we have to decide again, is the circumstance that extreme, which it seems like right now, to me, the general medical advice doesn't make it anywhere near that extreme, but you could say, well, what about people who are, um, who are, um, you know, who are a high risk and they can't go to mikvot, right? How you deal with situations like that. Uh, I think that the, uh, the question of whether it's a minority opinion or a minor opinion is an issue that has to be litigated. Uh, the deeper question is that is that most of these uh, suggestions, uh, what often happens when people exhume past opinions, is as in the technological issue, right, where you exhume Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe is not so we exhume, let's say the Minchat Eliezer about Zoom, so you don't talk about whether they whether they properly understood the science or whether it's different, right? So I've argued again. I'll talk about the Thursday night that all the chuvot that justify uh, being yotze uh, electronically. Are, assumed, are not dealing with any circumstance of digital signal processing. And digital signal processing may completely change the, um, right, di- uh, digital signal processing may, um, may completely uh, change, may change the environment. It might be all those true that are not applicable. So by the same circumstance, uh, aside from the question, our bathtubs are smaller than, than older bathtubs and the vast majority of our bathtubs, it's impossible to immerse yourself completely in. Uh, whether because of the total volume of water they contain or simply because they're too shallow. Um, the other, uh, and human beings don't box themselves up that way, the other, the other reality is that uh, municipal water systems um, are very different uh, in different places and, and different than the old things. So, for example, right, one of the raging debates about, um, about municipal water mikvot in the past were about whether water meters uh, function as kalim, but the vast majority, uh, I think, of municipal water systems now are pumped into holding tanks for processing on the way. And holding tanks are certainly Kalim, right? So I think that there's a long, long way. I don't, I don't mind people bringing up positions, but the notion that you can take a position from the past and immediately apply it to the present without reinvestigating the circumstances seems to me very problematic. Aside from all the, the, uh, all the, um, the authority issues that we have, um, that we have raised. I'm going to answer Adina's question. 
Um, Sagat Nefashot is not the same necessarily as Shasatrat, because obviously you can, you can violate almost anything in order to save your life. Uh, the question is, what happens if we say, well, you could not violate it, right? This is the, the Gemara's discussion about sukkah. So there seems to have been some decree against making a sukkah. So what they did instead was they made a sukkah with an invalid roof, which, right, because whoever was making the decree was very familiar with the laws of sukkah, would have said, oh, that's okay, that's just a booth, that's not a sukkah. So, um, so the question is, is that really a shasatrak? You know, the second the fashot doesn't enter into it. It's just really, I think it's just another circumstance where you, um, right, where you can't fulfill the mitzvah in the ordinary way because you can't fulfill the mitzvah in the ordinary way. So one reason you can't fulfill the mitzvah in the ordinary way is that we love him are not available. Another way is that they'll kill you if you fulfill the mitzvah in the ordinary way. Right? So that becomes the same kind of shasatrak. For lotase, right, if you're going to die, if you, right, if you don't fulfill the mitzvah, so then there's, um, right, so then you have no choice uh, but to violate the lotase as long as it's not one of the, uh, one of the big three, which of course is going to, you know, we have to deal with big issues of what the boundaries of the big three are. Okay, I did want to mention one last thing uh, that we're at the end of our hour. Um, I didn't, uh, we're not going to have time to do it in depth, but I wanted to take a look at, um, at some, you know, some of these issues we'll, we'll address more in depth in the, uh, in the night jurum. I wanted to uh, address two things. Like, so one is really, it's important to say, one is the, um, the Yad Malkiel. That's right. Uh, I think I forgot to share again. Let me go back to sharing. Uh, so the Yad, the Yad, the Yad Malkiel um, says that the rules about what, what's considered a Shittat Yachid um, have changed after the closing of the Talmud. That after the Talmud, every dispute in the Talmud between minorities and majorities has already been settled. Uh, that's settled law entirely, and the rule follows the majority in the Talmud, and you can't resurrect minority opinions in the Talmud, um, right? So the rules are only about, so this whole discussion is only about post-Talmudic law. Other people will make the same kind of claims about minority opinions not mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch. I don't uh, hold that position, but you should be aware that um, if we say right, that it is true, right, that the Gemara uses the boundary between uh, the Gemara uses Yachid Virabim as an example of a circumstance where the law has not yet been determined. It's just that we can mechanically quantify it as, as, as individual versus multiple, but the law hasn't been determined yet, and people argue in, at various levels that the law has been determined in the past for us. You have to, uh, right, you have to decide at what level, you, you, you know, under what circumstances you decide the law has been determined. I have argued in various contexts that the law is sometimes um, socially determined. If for 80 years, nobody has held that position, even though they held, it, they held it 80 years ago, and everybody has said that position doesn't count at all. So maybe at a certain point, the law is so decided that you can't resurrect that position at all. It's just been completely read out of the tradition. And I think that's possible um, as well, um, certainly until some major contemporary figure resurrects it. Um, there's also, right, the last thing I want to show you is that Chelkos Yaakov, this is too extreme uh, for us to do in 30 seconds, but I want to say for the Chalkos Yaakov, and when, when I post the source, you can look at it yourself um, later. The Chalkos Yaakov says that there's a difference, there's, an, there's a difference between a shasatrak that affects the individual and a shasatrak that has enormous communal consequences. And he treats us, you know, as worse, as, to some degree, worse than a famine. Um, right? When there's a shasatrak with enormous communal, uh, communal consequences. And what he argues, um, interestingly enough, right, he's dealing with cases of, of Igun in the post-Holocaust, in the post-Holocaust era. And what he says is, look, there's a, um, 
there are circumstances where he thinks that the rabbis would have to take the authority unto themselves to annul weddings if there were too many consequences, if, there, if the consequences socially were too bad. But then he has a really fascinating claim. He says, maybe you'll tell me, in an orphan generation like ours, the Beitin does not have the kind of discretion that the Rush was talking about. It doesn't have the, right, certainly, you know, certainly not in cases of marriages, maybe not even in cases of love. So he says in those, in circumstances where you think the rabbis have less formal authority, in those circumstances, then you have to say that the, the pressure on us to use our, our other tools is that much greater. And we have to allow things that would otherwise be bidiavad because these are situations that really should be solved by formal authority. If we no longer have the formal authority, then we have to use other, um, other, other possibilities as well because you can't leave the Jewish people in a circumstance where the halacha makes life impossible. So if you can't solve it in a certain sense, you know, by using rabbinic superpowers, then you have to use, then you have to be bolder in your use of ordinary rabbinic powers. And I think that that has a lot of truth as well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.